So we turn again to Acts chapter 17, and we are considering then the uh, Apostle Paul's defense of the faith and evangelism in Athens. And we come in chapter 17 of Acts to verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. So he is standing before a couple of dozen of the leading aristocrats and city administrators and philosophers, Stoics and Epicureans in particular, at a meeting then of the Forum, the uh, Areopagus, at Mars Hill in Athens. And he greets them respectfully, men of Athens. And then he says something personal, like preachers often do, to draw in uh, a congregation. As I was on my way here today, I noticed something. Oh, what was that? What caught your eye, Paul? It was an altar on which were written these words, to the unknown God. So what I plan to do to you on this uh, greatly privileged occasion you've given me in asking me to come and explain to you uh, what I'm teaching here at the marketplace day by day is to explain to you who this God is, unknown to you. So what we meet in this chapter then is a classic example then in a very compressed and abbreviated way. You can read it in a minute and a half, I suppose, but he would have taken half an hour maybe, to speak to them. And so we have the um, summary points of what he says. And he is saying it, of course, as a a plenipotentiary of God, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he is speaking these words with the authority of Christ behind him. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus wanted him to say. Well, how does he go on? Well, he doesn't speak about the problems of daily living, and how the Christian religion can help Athens people. It certainly can. Uh, It can improve your marriage and help you in your parenting. It does that. He didn't tell them that he could make plain to them the secret of happiness. Though indirectly, that's always the theme, then, of every sermon. He didn't begin with man at all. He didn't begin with Let me give you my personal testimony. He does that on a number of occasions elsewhere when he's more under attack for his evangelism. And he's not yet under attack here in Athens. He's the subject of scorn, but he's not on trial. He started then with Almighty God. Now the Areopagus would quickly grow weary of his message and annoyed with the things that he was saying, probing them, and completely presenting a contrast to what they believed. So he centers on the living God, on the priorities of the Christian message. And we're told to do the same, aren't we? Behold your God, and we tell the world who God is, and I'm going to tell you who God is this morning. And that's the most important and yet so neglected a message. Christianity begins here with the truth of uh, the existence of an objective, infinite, personal, and all-powerful God. Back of all, above all, beyond all, is God. High over all else, every rank and every station and every other name 
exalted in dignity and honor, the self-existent one who has given being and existence to all else. Everything lives because of him and out of him and for him. The very praises of heaven are focused on him. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Every soul belongs to God. Every one of you belongs to God. You exist by his pleasure. God being who and what he is, and we being who and what we are. The only thinkable relation between us is one of absolute omnipotent lordship on his part and complete submission on our part. We owe him every honor that it's in our power to give him. Our eternal grief lies in giving him anything less than that. Our chief end in life is to make our personalities like his. And we do that by constantly making our minds drawn out to him and putting him in his rightful position, high and lifted up, worthy of the highest worship and the highest adoration we can possibly give to him. With all our ransomed powers, we lift up him and we praise and we worship and serve him through our lives. That's the Christian life. The thought of God should be the Christian's panacea. In other words, it should cure all our ills at a stroke. We may be overwhelmed today. You've come reluctantly, perhaps, and uh, your hearts might be broken. But I tell you today that God lives. That's the panacea ultimately, for every troubled heart here this morning. Martin Luther was inordinately depressed at one time in his life, and in this heavy spirit he moped then day after day, and one day his wife came into his study dressed in black from head to foot. Luther was startled. What's happened, Kate, he said. Who's died? God, she said very solemnly. God has died. And she successfully awakened him then out of his discouragement by telling him the impossible and awakening him to the, the greatest reality and joy giver of all. And many evangelicals were being arrested and burnt at the stake. The counter-reformation was, had the power of the state and the church behind it and was resisting then the spread of gospel liberty. God was alive. God was building his church. God was pouring out his spirit. We may feel dead. We may feel spiritually, oh, I wish there was the life I once had. But God lives. And God heals the brokenhearted. We may have lost the one we love the most. But we can never lose the God who loves us much more. Death is coming nearer, but it will be for all of us the doorway to God, the God who is preparing a place for us, the God who will welcome us 
into his presence forevermore in his presence. There's fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And how magnificent to God he is. Glorious in his holiness. Fearful in his praises. Doing wonders. How powerful he is. The only restriction that is upon his choice of doing anything is his own will. He sits in heaven and he does whatsoever he pleases. Nothing can approach the beauty of our God. He's a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You go into him and he's love, and in and in, and he's love, and in and in and in. And he's love. And all that the Christian meets in God is his immeasurable love. A God without an atom of meanness. Without an atom of irritability. Without an atom of malice. Without an atom of indifference. That is our God. He loves me with a steady, untroubled, uncritical love. As though I were the only one in existence. He loved me before I was born. He created me to enjoy him eternally. He sent his son to endure the agony of Gethsemane and he did not spare him in order to secure my eternal blessedness. What else can heal my wounds? What else can dry my tears? What else can drive away my fears? As my appropriating this God to be my God, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. If God is God, then there are no unsolvable problems. If God is my God, there is no dilemma of mine that fails a correct solution. God will never put me in a circumstance where there is not a single good and proper exit. There is always in God what I need. There is in God such a supply of competence as the omnicompetent God, a God of such resources that he's able to transform my circumstances and shine light on dark patches and and show me the way to go. That is the elixir of life. There's no situation too hard for God. So let's remember him. And let's say, oh, I've been so foolish uh, as to forget God in the past days, to panic and run away. It's unworthy of the children of God. God exists in reality. I am that I am is. He's not a spiritual medicine invented by men's fears. He is not the mere opium of the people. He's the greatest and most fundamental reality that there is. When Spurgeon was 20 years of age and preached in London, the country boy from Suffolk, he came with his country accent. He was 20. It was a notable pulpit where famous men like John Gill had been the pastor. It was in dark days, New Park Street Chapel. And they, they heard him. 
They were overwhelmed with him. And they called him to be their pastor. And his first sermon was on God. And it was incredible that a 20-year-old should have such a grasp of God. It's the first sermon in the New Park Street pulpit, the first volume of those 56 volumes, and it's there. He stands before them, and with his red-spotted handkerchief tucked in his lapel, and he speaks to them. And they are humbled and moved and motivated and bring their friends along. And the great blessings of the ministry of Spurgeon begins. Paul begins with the greatness of God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, the first point then is that God made the world. In the beginning, God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The greatest four words ever written. There was a time, if, if we can call it a time, because time didn't exist then, when God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed. And absolutely nothing else. There was no heaven where now the glory of God is perfectly seen. There was no earth for him to focus on the seven billion people, then everyone made in the image and likeness of God, sustained and kept by him day by day. No angels existed to him, his praise. There were no galaxies to be upheld by the word of his power. There was unimaginable emptiness, nothingness, simply God alone. And that not for um, a fleeting second or a minute or a year or two or even a billion, billion years, but from everlasting. In the beginning, there was God and nothing else. God was alone and self-sufficient and self-contained and self-satisfied, in need of nothing, dependent on nothing outside himself whatsoever. He had no external life support systems, for none was ever needed. In fact, he had no needs at all. He was not at all lonely. There was the Father of infinite graces, and there was the Son of infinite graces, and there was the Holy Spirit of measureless, infinite graces, each one filled with delightful and total satisfaction at being in the presence of these other two persons. If God had needed a universe, if God had needed angels, if God had needed human beings, then they would have been called into existence from all eternity. But when God said, let there be light, when he began then the whole creation process that the Bible begins with, this added nothing essentially to the God who cannot be changed, whose glory can't be augmented, whose glory cannot be diminished. God created because he chose to create. It wasn't necessary that there should be a universe. It wasn't necessary that there should be you and me. God was under no obligation to repeat himself and create 
another universe and another and a billion billion universes. In the beginning, he made one cosmos, the heavens and the earth. The first sentence is saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and especially the earth. That's what it is, grammatically. God was under no necessity to create. He chose to do so by himself. It was his mere good pleasure. It was his volition that determined it. It was part of the all things that he engineered after the counsel of his own will. He created for his own manifest glory. And so he made the world. Paul told this to these Greeks who they couldn't conceive of such a God. They'd never thought of such a God. They had thousands of gods who fought and lusted and killed and had affairs and betrayed one another as they lived together on Mount Olympus, as graceless as a group of celebrities on Big Brother. Each god had their favored people and favored places in the world and jealously protected them and troubled other people in other places. And here is Paul, and he's presenting to them this, uh, this belief. There's only one God, just one God. And so there was a contrast and uh, an encounter with the beliefs of the polytheists. Polytheism is the belief that there are many gods. But Paul was also setting up another contrast, and that is between his God, our God, and the God of Socrates, who, like so many ideas of one God, was considered to be a solitary being, a divine loner, floating in nothingness, a God who lacked anything and anyone to love, a God who existed in total isolation. Now, you you couldn't know me without knowing my wife, without knowing my daughters and my sons-in-law and my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You couldn't know me without knowing my friends, without knowing you as a member of our congregation. You couldn't imagine, you couldn't envisage me as being in total isolation, absolutely alone. I can't think of myself as an absolute loner, a stranger, l'étranger, existing in isolation. I belong. I belong to you. I belong to my family. I belong to Wales. I belong to mankind. I, I give myself to people and I receive a hundredfold back from other people. But there is a particular God. Listen about this God. This God who millions believe in. And they preach him. And they die for him. And they kill for him. And they say to us, we want you to know, we don't believe in many gods. We just believe in one God. But that God that we believe in, he exists in utter isolation. He would probably love himself. But that is self-centeredness and that is selfishness and that's not true love. This God is a lonely God. 
This God is a single God. He's fundamentally inward looking, not outward going in love because there exists, apart from himself, absolutely nothing at all. Poor Allah, we say. He's said to have 99 names, titles, which describe him as he is in himself in eternity and one of them is the loving. But how could Allah be the loving in eternity? Before he created, there was nothing in existence that he could love. We could say of him, he loved absolutely nothing, for there was nothing at all besides him. And the only option is that he decides to make a creation, to have something to love, and then that raises another enormous problem. If Allah needs his creation to be who and what he is in himself, then Allah is dependent on his own creation. But Islam says about its God, Allah is dependent on nothing. You see the problem? How can a solitary God be essentially and eternally loving? Because love involves going out in affection and delight and service to another. So what you have, Allah has to create the world to have something to love. Allah is essentially dependent on the world. He needs the world to be a loving God. The world oozes out of him to be the necessary target of his love. If you do not have a triune God, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seamus when they come around, and I saw a couple walking, you know, walking around the doors and have a pan there. I have so much better a message to speak to people we feel. They reject the triune God. They don't, they don't believe that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. In the teeth of the evident testimony to these realities that are only explicable by that formula in Scripture. So you have an isolated God, a loner, a God who spends eternity alone. You have a God who is essentially self-centered. Well, why, why would such a God bother to cause anything else to exist? Why so distracting an entity as a cosmos? For a God who's been eternally satisfied with himself, his greatest pleasure has been to look at himself in a mirror. Creating a universe for such a God? Well, it seems such a deeply unnatural thing for such a God to do. And when he creates, he seems to be using his powers for self-gratification. Oh, men and women, listen to me now. Everything changes when you look at the God of the Bible, the God and Father of Jesus Christ, the God who Paul preached to them, the God in whose presence we meet today. He is Father and he is Son and he is Holy Ghost. He is one living God. He's not essentially lonely. He's been loving from all eternity. The Father loves the Son 
and the Son loves the Father, and they love the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loves them. Loving is not a new thing. It's not a strange thing for God to do. It's what God's always been. He created the world to share his love for his Son with a number of people you can't calculate. You can't count. And every one of them is going to be turned into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. is going to be transformed and is going to share a new heavens and a new earth with him as glorious manifestations of Jesus, his son. That's why God made the world. And so he is saved from drawing attention to himself in sick vanity because God's self is totally different from any others, from all the Greek ideas of their gods that were jealous and angry and loving and fighting and full of self. Our creator God's self is displayed in this, that he loves. In love he created all things. In love he sent his son into the world to be our saviour. He spared him not, but freely gave him up for us all. God shows his love, not in taking and demanding, but in giving and giving and giving. God is love. Paul says, oh, he loved me, and he gave himself for me. He seeks to have his own self known and disseminated and shed abroad Throughout his creation, diffused through the heavens, diffused through the earth, he tells Isaiah, get up into a high mountain, that's going to be your pulpit. And here is your text, behold your God, and talk to the people and preach to all the people. What kind of God you serve, what kind of God I am. And that's God's very nature then. God eternally goes out and out and out and it reaches to Aberystwyth. And all our background and all our lives, this God has come and this God has touched us and changed us and kept us and will glorify us one day. And then the other thing that Paul says here is that God made everything in it. That's the next thing. How does a man become a father? Well, he becomes a father by begetting A child. He becomes a husband by marriage, but he becomes a father by creating. Uh, A father, by definition, is someone who gives life to someone else. A barren God who is not a father would be incapable of giving life, especially of birthing a creation. Not our Heavenly Father. From eternity, he has been the eternally begetting God. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. When was that? It was in eternity. He's the eternally begetting father of the eternally begotten son. He's a begetting father. He is fruitful. He is potent. He is vitalizing. For such a God, and only for him, it's all very natural and entirely unsurprising that he should bring about 
the glorious abundance of life that we see in the world today. Has he not eternally begotten his son? And so in his loving nature then, and in his actions, he begets all of creation. What a universe he has made. What a universe he's furnished. It's not some bare rock like the pictures we have of the moon. Then, uh, more barren than, uh, than Arizona's desert or the Sahara. It's not like that at all. A lifeless moon. Mars. Uh, the close-up of an asteroid. A cold volcanic rock. In God was life. And that life was the light of men. And he acted and then the world teemed with life. He created everything for life. The air, the waters, the soil, the vegetation, every living thing that walks or swims or flies or crawls. All things bright and beautiful. All things great and small designed made by him. He made this living world with breathtaking beauty and with the most extraordinary variety. You imagine you're standing in a fertile oasis in the Sahara Desert. Millions of of square miles of sand are all around you. Or you are standing at the South Pole and you are watching a circle of, of, of penguins then uh, hatching their eggs and uh, giving birth to baby penguins and feeding them and all around are millions of square miles of ice and snow and you are saying, am I on the same planet? Our God birthed the mountains crowned with snow and the valleys with their forests and their fields and the prairies and the mines and the minerals and the grasses and the herbs and the soils and the climates. It all bears his DNA as its creator, grain of sand, a drop of water when you examine it under a microscope, a seed, the Alps, the Pacific, the red kite, the elephant, the dolphins in our bay, the song of the birds, The tide that comes into the harbour and lifts up the boats. The breeze that refreshes us in a heat wave. All designed by God. All sustained by him. Nothing self-produced. Though in every creature, like the dog, various breeds and unusual characteristics have evolved and developed by the potency that God has given to plant it in every living thing. Trees may propagate themselves, but their seeds and their biological identity has been designed and fashioned by the God who made all living things. The sculptor didn't uh, originate the material he works with. The artist didn't create the colors. Shakespeare didn't invent the structures of the English language which he wrote. A nightingale didn't uh, teach herself the melody of her song. The creator made everything in the world. He made the atom. He made the double helix of the molecular structure. He made the metal out of which the angel of the north was forged. He made the natural gas of the North Sea, the oil that's in the shale, deep underground that can be released by fracking. The tablets on which the wisdom of Solomon's Proverbs were first uh, cut out, the ink which Bunyan used when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress in his prison. Aspirin, penicillin, 
X-rays, Lego, iPads, mobile phones, satellites, jumbo jets, ice cream, meringues. Our Heavenly Father created the potential for all of this and what new marvels will be revealed. One God made the world and all that is in it, Paul told them. The hill where Paul was standing was named after the god Mars. And the city of Athens, in which they were meeting, was named after another goddess. But the apostle says, you've got it all wrong. There's one living, one true God. And he's the sole creator. No one was there helping him. No one was there saying, do it this way. Don't do it that way. No one at all. He thought of it. He designed it. He made it in nothing whatsoever. In nihilum. Rather than ex nihilo, out of nothing, but in nothing. He made it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. The Athenians had never heard anything like it in their lives before. It was a whole new message. They were, their ears were itching to hear something new. They'd never heard anything like this before. If there was no creation in the beginning, then what we'd see around us, the sea and the moon and the trees, they are God. The only God there is. And a groaning, sinning humanity would cry to trees and to the rising and the setting sun and the waxing and waning moon. We would talk to it. and It would never answer. It would never tell us that it loved us. And wanted to spend eternity with us and it would save us and forgive us and take us to himself. There is this great distinction between the creature and the creator. We call it, the buzzword is ontological. A different being is God's from his earth. And we see his glory everywhere. Night and day, we see it. We wake up in the morning, we open the curtains and we see the glory of God and in the night the stars appear and the moon and we see the glory of God and the only question is how can I please him I know him then in scripture in the world around and in the gospel how can I please him how can I do his will what does he want from me in my life and then the last thing he says here is He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Well, now that's an interesting phrase. Let's say that the heavens refer to the sky and to space in all its vastness. The solar system, our galaxy and other galaxies. And our God is Lord of that. Let's say it means that. And then the earth means then our planet. And so we say he's got the whole world in his hands. Or let's say... Um, earth and heaven are comprehensive in another way that this earth refers to well our three score years and ten this short and uncertain earthly pilgrimage that some of us are approaching the end of it and others of you are at the beginning but it's this world so uncertain and heaven refers then ah, to the eternal state where we are going, to the glory that lies before us. And he is Lord of earth and heaven. 
That's what he's saying. Well, in whatever interpretation is, is correct, that's true in both of them. There's no escape from the lordship of, of your God. Your God has brought you here today, and your God has given me this message to give to you, to speak to you about himself, because there is a deficiency in your life, because God doesn't fill every part of your life, of your soul, of your mind, of your heart, as he should. And you're filling it with stuff, instead of him. And so what the Apostle is saying is that there is no rogue molecule in all the universe that is not under the lordship of God. Because he is lord of heaven and earth. And that embraces everything. There's not some sort of North Korean state somewhere in heaven and earth which is totally isolated and which is saying, back off. You can't come in here. Keep out. You're not welcome. We do things our way here. There's no such place of forbidden access, uh, of a no-go area where God lacks any influence. If it's in the heavens, he's Lord of the heavens. If it's on the earth, well, he's Lord of the earth. He's Lord of simply everything that there is. Now, when he's speaking about his lordship over everything, um, it's not like the Queen's lordship, which is limited and restricted and democratic, and it's a titular lordship. She doesn't pass laws, and she doesn't punish people then who break her laws. It's limited. He's not limited. His is a real lordship. He is the God who is involved in your life and ordains everything that, that happens, that takes place. I had a letter today, well, yesterday from Graham Heaps about Sue and how she's breaking up before his eyes now and hasn't got long to live. And he describes her and expresses how wonderful she is, and he's wonderful. And then he says, but God's ways are best. That's, that's, that's our comfort as Christians. Because God is Lord of heaven and earth, and God's ways are best. That's the ground rock of our comfort, the bedrock of it all. And he's in charge. He knows what he is doing. There are men and women in rebellion against God. Everywhere in the world, every imagination of the thoughts of their hearts are only evil continually. We won't have this God rule over us, we say. Sin is rampant. The horrible things we see on the news each day. But God sustains them. Imagine it. The ISIS fighters. And God is so patient with them. Well, we can be patient too. We can be patient We want justice and righteousness. There are mean people about, aren't there? And we think to ourselves, well, God is is patient with them. I'll be patient. I don't like the way this member of my family is behaving, this neighbor is behaving. I must be patient. I commit this matter to God day 
by day. Because God, the Lord of heaven and earth, he's good to his enemies. Dr. Van Til, my esteemed teacher, was once on a train in the days when Americans didn't fly, but they went by train. And so uh, a man came to sit opposite him with a little two-year-old boy, and the boy was on his lap. And after an hour, the boy was so restless, he wanted to get off the train. He didn't want to be confined there. And he was hitting his father. His father was sustaining him and keeping him, and he was smacking his father in the face. And for Van Til, that was an immediate picture of sinners in the world being blessed by a God who's made them and helped them and gives them every good and lovely thing and they blaspheme his name and they curse him. He is Lord of all. It isn't the devil who's in charge of this world. Our God reigns. When Joseph's brothers did such a terrible thing to him, sold him into slavery and broke their father's heart. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. God will make it plain. God will make plain what we are seeing, what we are doing, what we are experiencing in our world today. You were men in Athens who thought themselves independent of God. Like the men all around us who says, well, one day, after I've tasted the world, I'll come to God. I'll, I'll, I'll repent of my sins and I'll come to God at my time, in my way. He can't force me, they say. And yet this living God loves them and cares for them, provides for them all things, prospers them. They enjoy their travels. They love their children. They enjoy long life. God is good to them all. God has been so good to you. Do you think it was some propitious lotto balls that fell one day when you were born and it said, uh, live in the UK, live a long life, be intelligent, um, get a good job, be, prosper financially, uh, have a wife and children. Do you, think, do you think luck did all that? Do you think it's lucky that you came here today and heard about your God, the God I'm talking to you about? Don't you know you need to, to, to know him, to join to him? to trust in him, to repent of ignoring him for so long. The God who made the heaven and earth, he is Lord. He's Lord of all things. He's your Lord. Go with this Lord then. Go, go with him in the days to come, in the years that lie ahead when you have to battle with ill health and raise children and know where the next meal is coming from. You, you, you need this God. Ask him. You, you ask him. And don't stop asking him until you know. You know him as your God. Your God. How wonderful. 
He's my God. He's mine. My God. Lord, bless your word to us today then and teach us about the marvelous, massive reality of you as our creator. That we live in you. Our hearts beat because of you. Every breath is in your hands. Oh God, hear us. Draw near to us, we pray. Help us. Help us to draw near to you through Jesus Christ, through the appointed way. Wash our robes and make them white. Clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. Help us to live for Jesus day by day. We ask in his name. Amen.